0: Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast
1: for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques, with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad.
2: Welcome, or hopefully welcome back, to the Reliability Matters podcast. For those of you who are keeping score, this is episode number 114. On this show, we've discussed many aspects of the electronics assembly process. We've talked about reflow, thermal management, printing, soldering materials, additives, and so much more. What do all these topics have in common? When done correctly, they all contribute to the reliability of circuit assemblies, hence the name Reliability Matters. Today, we're going to dive into the subject of cleaning circuit assemblies after reflow. For many assemblers, the cleaning process was replaced by the use of no-clean-flux technology. Time and technology have eroded the concept of allowing all residues to remain on the assembly for many manufacturers. Today, residue-cause failures are such a concern that IPC recently and radically changed the way circuit assemblies are considered to be clean. My guests today are Sal Sparacino and Eric Camden. Sal is director of sales at Zestron Americas, located in Manassas, Virginia. Zestron is a manufacturer of cleaning chemicals for the electronics industry. Eric is a lead investigator for Foresight, an analytical laboratory based in Kokomo, Indiana. Eric's the guy you call when things go wrong. Together with my experience as a cleaning equipment manufacturer, we'll discuss how cleaning contributes to increased reliability and we'll review the reasons cleaning has returned as a mainstream assembly process. So, without any further ado, let me welcome Eric and Sal to the show. Hey, fellas. Hey, Mike. How you doing, Mike? <laughs> Thanks I'm, for that introduction. You are welcome. Thank you guys for agreeing to be on the show. I really, I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, drink or ten. So, um, so this almost sets up like like a. Like a joke, you know, three three cleaning guys walk into a bar and, <laughs> and go from there. Um, Maslow, one of Maslow's theory is, one of his theories is that uh, if all you have is a hammer, you see the world as a bed of nails. And if all you are is a cleaning person, you tend to see the world through the lens of something being clean or something being dirty. So um, I, I don't know if that's unique to me, but I would assume you you kind of view the world the same way. Um, Let's talk about cleaning. There's a lot of subjects we we uh, discuss on this show um, that relate to how clean boards are, or sorry, that relate to reliability. Um, We we talk about reflow, we talk about um, uh, printing and soldering materials, failure analysis, standards and all that. And um, cleaning is uh, definitely one of those um, new again mainstream topics that has uh, come back to relevancy. So I thought it would be a good idea to, to grab uh, two of my favorite experts and, and let's, uh, let's talk cleaning for a while. So cleaning from a historical perspective, um, we'll start there. I always like to go back in, in my way back machine, the time machine. Um, I started in this industry in 1985 and Uh, Every, for the most part, with very few exceptions, every circuit board was cleaned. And and one of the exceptions was television sets, old-fashioned tube CRT-type television sets. Um, They tended to use a real heavy solids, rosin flux, and they never cleaned it. It's kind of a poor man's conformal coating. Um, Outside of that, and maybe a couple other, you know, low-end applications, boards were all cleaned. It was just a matter of practice. It was a protocol uh, but then, of course, something happened that we're all aware of in 1989, which was the um, signing of the Montreal Protocol, which was a treaty, which effectively banned the cleaning solvents that were common uh, in in our industry: 111 trichloroethane, Freon TMS, and a bunch of generic versions of those, and. We had two choices then. It was a 10-year phase out. So from 1989 to 1999, we had, we had some decisions to make. One decision would be to change solvents or change cleaning medias. Um, but our industry was blessed or cursed, depending upon who you are, with an alternative uh, technology. And that was the use of a flux, um, probably aptly named at the time, maybe not so appropriate today, called no clean flux. And the idea was the residues would be invisible and the invisible residues would be benign and you could throw away your cleaners and not have ever have to clean again. And uh, that that was the promise and it was that promise was kept for you know, at least a couple of decades uh, for most people. I think it's quite interesting that there were, were a few groups of manufacturers that did not buy into that, one being the military world, the aerospace world, the medical world, basically people who built things. If they failed, people would die, um, or there would be you know, a great cost. Uh, they didn't buy into that philosophy of not cleaning. Uh, but that's only a small percentage of the electronics industry, consumer stuff, class one, class two. IPC class 1, class 2, um, not mission critical. Most of the electronic manufacturing falls into that realm. And those folks all said, throw out the cleaners. And, and, uh, and they embraced, uh, rightly so at the moment, this concept of not cleaning the boards after reflow. So let's, let's talk about that um, for a little bit. Um, what factors would you say contributed to the success of no clean flux and and not having to remove any of the contaminants that are on the board? Uh, and what factors contributed to or are contributing to that practice no longer being quite as relevant as it was before? I'll turn that over to either Sal or Eric and let's just go for it.
1: Well, I'll I'll jump in here. You know, I started here at Foresight, you know, at the time CSL in uh, actually January uh, of 2000. So I came in right after no cleans were starting to become adopted throughout the industry. And what we saw from a lot of our customers, they were thrilled. Like you said, you know, we don't have to clean. You can take the cleaner off the floor and, you know, in that same space, they can put another line. So, you know, I, I think, you know, being able to expand your... Assembly capability without expanding your actual footprint of your facility, I think, was a big selling point for a lot of companies, and you know, and I think that was a good thing at the time you mentioned. But you know, as they uh, kept up with you know miniaturization, they saw other issues come along where maybe that wasn't going to be you know practical for all of their different parts that they were that they were producing. So you know, early on, what I saw you know was a lot of customers taking their inline wash equipment off the floor and replacing it with another line or, you know, different inspection equipment, whatever it might be, you know, they all of a sudden had 32 more feet on an already jam-packed line. And, you know, but I think back to 2000, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, assembly going on, you know, everywhere around the world was really starting to expand, I think back, you know, early 2000s. So I think, you know, every square foot that they could scavenge, you know, I, I think was going to be very important for that, you know, particular CM.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll just chime on to that Eric, um, you know, just a couple more points here. Uh, one thing that stayed, right, because there are still people that were using water soluble stuff, right? So going back to those times, you're still cleaning water soluble with water, right? But then going back to Mike's question, you know, what's changed? Well, what's changed, and Mike, I know you talk about this very often in a lot of webinars I've seen, as well as my own company here um you know the board board geometry has changed tremendously in the last 10 years right so things are getting much more densely packed um you know stack components and and these types of things and you know kind of what worked 15 20 years ago be it water or not um is not necessarily working today and which kind of goes back to to my company if i can just say it this way we weren't even in the electronic business in the 80s as zestron right um, so Montreal protocol basically opened a window and we are one of the companies, one of a few that recognize, you know, that, Hey, we understand we got this no clean thing. But as you pointed out, Mike, there's a number of people that in the high rail space. And, and I think a phrase that you always use that I like to to take from you is risk tolerance, right? When that risk tolerance, you, you know, if you don't have a high risk tolerance, you need to know that your electronics are going to be un- safe to use in the indefinite future. You know, that kind of brings us, you know, I'm sure we're going to get to the failure mechanisms, you know, things like that. But yeah, so those are just you know, a few of the comments there. You know, so water is still an issue and the need to clean is as big as ever today.
2: Yeah, I should have pointed out that was also one of the alternatives. It wasn't just clean or not clean. Um, mm-hmm. One of the alternatives was switch to a water-soluble flux. And use water to clean it. Now, right. a lot of people did that. Uh, of course, back in the day when pretty much all boards were cleaned, the cleaning method was primarily conveyorized or inline cleaners. As Eric mentioned, you know, they, they saved a thirty feet of floor space when they got rid of that process Here. or more. Um, I remember Linda Woody from Lockheed. She designed her own cleaner. You know, they call it the Woody Cleaner. And um, it was forty feet long. (laughs) I just can't imagine. And I think it was all stainless steel, if I recall. It was a it was a beast. Um, But um, back in the day, when everything was cleaned, there was a need for volume, Uh, and and conveyorized or inline machines, you know, fit that volume need. Uh, When for other applications uh, that were military related or medical or or uh, aerospace which are traditionally not consumer volumes you know they're they're dozens of boards not thousands of boards the most common method for them was uh, vapor degreasers which would (laughs) boil the solvent and uh, the board would be cleaned in the boiled solvent and then rinsed effectively in the vapor area and the flying the ointment was when they pulled the basket of boards out they they released that vapor lock, and and uh, chlorine molecules escaped up to the upper parts of the atmosphere and chewed on ozone like Pac-Man. And, <laughs>
0: right, and uh,
2: you know scientists were afraid that would create a uh, um, a lessening of the ozone layer, and um, you know that was we've had several terms for environmental issues. It used to be ozone depletion. You know that's what caused the Montreal Protocol. That's why we're all talking. Um, then it went to global warming, and now it's climate change. You know, I think I think people held the uh, the environmentalist words specifically. You know, they said you said global right. warming. It's chilly. <laughs> it's chilly. <laughs> right? So climate change. Um, so let's bounce around a little bit. Um, Sal, you talked about people using water to clean, uh, which was definitely an alternative. Cleaning today requires a a method, obviously. That method could be manual. That method could be automated. Uh, If it's manual, it's usually a can of aerosol uh, solvent um, and a scrub brush, basically. Um, That method is relegated primarily to rework and repair. So we're probably not going to spend too much time on that because that's fairly self-evident. Automated versions go from immersion cleaners, modern vapor degreasers running solvents that have yet to be banned, some of which are on the, the ban list. Um, it's kind of like the FBI's most wanted. Eventually, they get caught, right? So, um, <laughs> But the number of – the vo- sheer volume of solvents that could be used since the Montreal Protocol has has been reduced, not for CFC reasons but for other environmental reasons. Um the the most popular method from a production standpoint seems to be water-based systems. Now there's a misconception when people say water-based systems because they're saying well I'm cleaning a rosin flux. I can't clean that with water. But water-based systems are not necessarily and not commonly just water, south. Walk us through um what the chemicals do in a water-based system
0: and how they work with water. Sure. Yeah, that's um, um good question, Mike. So think of it this way, that that what we're cleaning, the residues, the soils, whatever, however you want to describe them, they're 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 polar and nonpolar in nature, right? So and the things that are polar in nature obviously can be clean with water, right? Light dissolves like always think of it that way. So what we do um as in our company as well as others out there, we make what's called an engineered aqueous-based water-based cleaning agent, and now these these water-based cleaning agents do have a I'll call it a solvent constituent, if you will. Um, so we you know typically we're running somewhere in the call it the ten percent range, twelve percent range, thirteen something like that in terms of the concentrate chemistry or the engineer solution um, that gets um, you know, homogenized within the water within the water phase itself. And together, I mean, really what that does, and I think I sent you a chart, Mike. I mean, let me think of it this way. When you look at water, okay, water has a, a specific surface density or surface tension, if you will, right? And think about, you know, substrates, these electronic substrates that, you know, that that, that customers have. There's a lot of components on a board these days, right? Um, I know, Mike, you always show pictures of boards circa 19, whatever, 80 in an iPhone today. And you look at the what we call the standoff height, or some people call it the Z height, if you will, of a component from the substrate surface. These days we're talking somewhere around one and a half to two mil. Um, so water has a high surface tension. And I know that's a bit of an eye chart there, but essentially water is somewhere in the 70 dines per centimeter surface tension. And if you heat it up, it goes down a little bit. It drops down to maybe the, the mid to low 60s or thereabouts. Now, these water-based cleaning agents or these aqueous-based engineered cleaning agents, effectively, they reduce that surface tension. And when that surface tension is reduced, it literally enables that, the cleaning solution to interact with, with, with the residues that are on the board. And here's another really important point. So, um, you know, going back to the chart, if you all like, um, the cleaning agent surface tension drops you down to 30 or to the high 20s. So less than half of what it is with water. But now think about this, Um, the the cleaning solution has to contact the residue. And when I speak with customers often about, you know, cleaning technology, and again, I don't care if it's a batch cleaner or an ultrasonic cleaner or an inline cleaner, but let's just say a mechanical cleaning device in general um, there's three things that really need to be optimized. And and this is the way I think of it, you know, as I'm talking to customers and analyzing what their you know, what their challenges may be. First of all, there's what I call the chemical energy. So in other words, do we have the right cleaning chemistry? Do we have the right um cleaning agent that's going to solubilize those residues? So that's really number one, right? And again, it's like dissolves light. There's lots of different solder phase out there, fluxes and so on you know, rosin, no-clean, water-based, synthetics, and so on, right? So we, as a cleaning agent supplier, need to make sure that, A, we're matching the cleaning agent uh, so that it has a solvency to uh, dissolve those residues if it can get in contact. So that's number one, the chemical energy. Number two is thermal energy, right? The temperature. Is, is impactful, right? Just think of just washing your hands, right? Are you going to wash your hands with 30-degree water or would you like to have 100-degree water in your sink, right, with soap, right? It, makes, it does make a difference. And the last thing, which is equally important or maybe even more important, depending on the machine, is what I call the mechanical energy. In other words, how are we delivering that solution to the surface of that ford, right? Hum. Because if we can't contact the, the, the residue, then there's no way to solubilize and there's no way to get it out. So, going back to your question, um, you know, having a cleaning agent that has both polar and nonpolar constituents, you know, that will ensure, you know, and if we saw it, provided we know what the different solder base and other chemistries the customer is using, that'll ensure that we can symbolize those residues, you know, we're matching the, the cleaning agent to that, and then by, by looking at the machine, and what we call, we, we use it, the phrase over at run a lot, optimizing, making sure that we're picking you know that sweet spot between concentration. You know, am I going to run it at ten percent, twelve percent concentration? Temperature? Am I going to run it at one hundred twenty degrees, or one hundred forty, or one hundred and fifty? Obviously, for a cost-effective solution, we want that temperature to be as low as possible. We want the concentration no, to be Sal, as low as you possible. Wanna, you want to
2: you want to come close to boiling it so it all goes up the stack and you can deliver more <laughs> and more and more. Come
0: on, get real. Oh, no, you're no, killing no. you're killing me. Like no, 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 no but no. you know what to say. But yeah, no. I mean, it's it's all about the value proposition we're delivering to the customer, right? And then we match right. that with the optimization of the machine, right? Working with guys like you and your team and other uh, equipment suppliers out there, um, you know, making sure we understand the type of nozzles you use and the spray pressures you use and the number of bars you use and all those types of things, and we optimize that. And and that's how we can deliver, you know, a sweet solution for a customer.
2: Excellent. I'm going to ask Eric a question in just one second, but I want to hit on something that, that you said, um, and that was... Um, you know, delivering the, uh, the cleaning material to the part and energy and things like that. One thing that um, I miss, frankly, I used to sell vapor degreasers, you know, back in the 80s. And one thing I miss about the uh, vapor degreaser technology was that the solvent did the majority of the work. It what did. you needed to do was expose the soils to the solvent and since it was an immersion process into boiling solvent you know the the total amount of energy that was required to dissolve solubilize the soils was provided by the chemical the chemical was heated obviously cuz it's boiling and all the operator had to do was dunk the basket in count to 30 and pull it out and the boards were were virtually guaranteed to be clean or at least clean enough the Chemicals that are used today, the water-based chemicals that are used today, don't work on contact. I remember early in the in uh, the no-clean days, and and as and then a little later on when people started coming back to cleaning, never experienced uh, never experiencing a, an aqueous-based chemical. Here, here. They would they would run a trial. They would they would basically take a solvent, drop a a, a droplet of solvent on onto a slide that has flux on it and uh, set their stopwatch and see how long it took to dissolve. And then they would do the same with an aqueous chemical at ambient temperature uh, with no energy and just contact. And all they would do is make the flux wet. It wouldn't solubilize. So some people just said, this stuff's no good. Um, Look at, you know, solvents are so much better. What they didn't realize was that there's an extra dynamic other than contact, it takes energy.
0: It takes mechanical
2: energy because the modern chemicals, and I'm preaching to the choir here, Sal, because you make those chemicals. (laughs) (laughs) But for the sake of our audience, the modern chemicals that are used today um, that are dominating the cleaning world um, don't work on just contact. They Uh, require folks like me and other manufacturers to deliver those chemical products with sufficient energy to force the solubilization process or saponification process, depending on the technology, uh, to work. They don't work just on contact. So it takes contact, it takes heat, it takes mechanical energy to all work in in, in a symphony to create the solubilization effect um, that can then be rinsed off afterwards. Eric. One of the things that um, I talk about a lot is the decision to stop removing flux was also a decision to stop removing everything. And I think that fact was lost on a lot of people. Um, I I advise in my workshops and webinars and papers, I always advise people to not think of it as a defluxing process. Because if you're calling it a defluxing process and you're buying... Uh, defluxing equipment from me and defluxing chemical from Sal to run a defluxing process, and then someone tells you the flux is fine, problem solved, right? Check. You don't have to do it. <laughs> but but really, I think the, the, the block a lot of people have is it's not a defluxing process. Yes, it is, but it is more importantly a cleaning process. Right. Because there are a few other to say the least, a few other residue species on an assembly beyond sure. flux. Um, Eric, you mean the uh, usual suspects? <laughs> the usual suspects, thank you. Yes, the usual suspects. Um, you are a lead investigator for an analytical laboratory. Your job is to find dirt and, and expose it and, and uh, find the root cause of it and, and right. provide solutions. And how to eliminate it. it, yeah. How to eliminate it. What are the types of residues I mean, your lab has all this analytical equipment. You have ion chromatography and surface insulation resistance testing and all sorts of cool gadgets to, to analyze what the soils are. Uh, from your experience, what are, besides flux, that's the that's the given, sure. besides flux, what are the other contaminant species on a board when the flux is allowed to remain due to a, a lack of a cleaning process?
1: Right. So, I mean... We've gone over this, uh, you know, a lot of different times, and it's not just the flux. You know, you're you're choosing to leave everything in place from the bare board manufacturing process, from the component uh, manufacturing process, from handling, packaging, any other materials that might come in contact with the PCBA. So, you know, the different residues, you know, if, if it were just flux, it would be a lot easier to handle. But considering the plating process, you know, with PCBs and even with the... Um, component manufacturing process. You know, we've done a lot of different failure analysis studies here, you know, over the years, and, um, you know, a lot of times we find it's not the flux, you know, like um, the, the component manufacturing process, you know, it, it is almost a microcosm of the PCB fab process, because so you've got plating, you've got to do neutralization uh, steps with components, you've got to do, you know, good rinse after uh, the plating, or, you know, because we've seen, you know, we, we've seen cases where it was a fantastic you know manufacturing process using a no clean flux you know they were seeing the right temperatures uh the right dwell times everything required to render all those residues near benign and they were still getting failure on uh, on some components um I, you can go ahead and show that photo that cap you know this was what the customer was you know coming to us and saying we've got this failure you know well this had nothing to do with the pc uh, excuse me the the, the assembly process of everything to do with the process of that component manufacturing. So they weren't being properly neutralized and rinsed after the plating process. So, you know, this was never taken care of with wash process as if you're using water soluble flux. And for the
2: sake of our audience who are driving in their cars, um, you know, with a little FOMO, because they can't see this picture, this is a picture of a a surface mount capacitor uh, with a dendrite, we'll explain what that is in a moment, growing right across the surface uh, between and the top, polarities on top on top of it. Yes. Yes. And, right. and going from one polarity to another, from a cathode to an anode um, explain for those who are not aware, what is a dendrite? What causes dendrites? And what harm do they, uh, <laughs> do they,
1: do they provide sure. on an assembly? Sure. So, so dendrite or electrochemical migration, uh, growth is basically a deplating cell that uh, that pulls metal from the cathode to the anode under power. So to grow dendrites, you have to have three, uh, three conditions that have to be present. You have to have moisture, you have to have voltage differential, and you have to have some sort of conductive residue. In the case of this capacitor with a dendrite growing on top, it was part of the uh, the, the metallization process that was left in place and not properly rinsed. So, you know, what happens is, you know, during the growth of electrochemical migration, um, you can see intermittent failures depending on the amount of available atmospheric moisture, depending on the amount of voltage going across uh, cathode to anode. But eventually you'll have a dead short because you've basically grown a trace from one hole to the other. So, you know, this is where we see, you know, most of the failures that are sent in to us. Um, you know, I would still say the vast majority are related to cleanliness and we see electrochemical migration or some similar um, effect like that from leaving, you know, active residues on the board, you know, r- regardless of the, the source, you know, that I would say, you know, we're not looking for flux residue, we're looking for ionic content and we'll figure out where it's coming from, you know, what we like to do, you know, background samples on the flux and kind of compare it to the results on a failed board and say, okay, this is most likely the flux residue, let's look at thermal profiles, things like that to, to optimize that process but it could be from a number of different things the, the water used um you know for the just the PC fab rinse you know if they're not using good quality water there could be leaving you know calcium magnesium something you know tap water we've seen several cases where a PC fab shop was using just standard tap water you know really dirty tap water and so they were you know making a fine product and then making it dirty before they sent it out the door so yeah i mean w- when you decide not to clean you're not just deciding not to clean flux, you're deciding to leave all process residues in place, you know, on your final assembly. And then when that goes out in the field, plug it in, you know, a little bit of moisture, you're going to find out how dirty it is.
2: Yeah. A lot of times when I speak at, you know, public events, at conferences and symposiums or whatever, sometime, you know, I'll, I'll talk about uh, no clean. And and when I'm done, inevitably a flux manufacturer will come up to me and take, take issue with my comments on on not cleaning sure. and and they're and they're trying to assure me and they're showing me proof that their flux is not that conductive it's very little residue and the residue is is relatively benign and ironically sure. i agree with all that 100 they're 100 percent. that's not my yep. issue my issue is the totality of all of the residues a little right. bit from flux a little bit from component fab a little bit from Here. board fab a little bit from dirty humans a little bit just from the all the conveyors these machines go to go through right um, all of that in totality raises the stakes now, one of the questions i'm asked regularly is why now? No clean had a very successful run again, as I said earlier, the military and high rail people they they stayed away from it, um, which I'm grateful for if I, you know I fly a lot on airplanes and I'm very happy that, to know that those boards were cleaned. Um, but, but for the most part, the commercial industry, the consumer industry, they got away with not cleaning for a long time. And, and arguably, um, it was successful. The boards were reliable. We're seeing in the last several years a, an avalanche of issues, failures, and reliability issues Uh, related to electrochemical migration, ECM. Uh, You talked about dendritic growth, you know, which is the dramatic um, version of ECM. That's what creates the the sparks, the soot, in some cases fire, things like that. There's also parasitic electrical leakage, uh, which is a temporary problem. It's not really enough to grow a dendrite that you can see, but it's enough to reduce the resistivity, which normally doesn't cause the drama. It doesn't cause things to catch fire but frequently it causes things just not to work properly. Like you can't calibrate right. a board. It just No, won't.
1: no trouble founds are most often, you know, they end up finding some parasitic leakage somewhere. So Absolutely. It, it's not bad enough yet, which is, you know, it, it, that's the worst case, really. You know, it works sometimes, it doesn't sometimes. So we start talking about parasitic leakage. You know, a lot of that's dependent on, you know, the duty cycles and the amount of va- available moisture on that. So we, the, that's those are the ones that really drive people crazy because they don't have a hard failure.
2: Right. And unlike, a, unlike dendritic growth, dendrites grow until they stop growing. And they stop growing when the conditions are, are not right for them to grow, like enough moisture. Then the moment it's returned back to a harsh environment, they grow a little further and a little further. And eventually, you know, the, their goal is to reach the, reach the finish line and short out. Um, at least one good thing about dendritic growth is you can see it. You can put it under a scope. And you can fairly easily see it. Um, parasitic leakage is invisible; you can't see it. It's just this invisible path of little bits of current that are allowed to flow uh, in an otherwise dielectric part of the board. Right, it, the board loses its dielectric properties, basically its resistive properties. The 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 frustrating part, as you said, as you alluded to, Eric, you know, with uh, no trouble found, NTF, is that. Parasitic leakage will only occur when the conditions are optimal. When a customer can't calibrate a device in the field, they send it back to the factory for investigation or repair. The factory, of course, has a climate-controlled environment. Uh, It's no longer exposed to a harsh environment. They troubleshoot it. Everything calibrates perfectly. The, The device operates perfectly. They issue it a no trouble found. They ship it back to their customer. The customer uses the the product in a moist environment, a humid environment, or otherwise harsh environment, uh, and it fails again. And you know you get this going back and forth. I, I, I um, like uh, Doc Brown. I had him on the show a while ago, and he said that you should never refer to it as no trouble found. You should always think of it as trouble not found. And
0: <laughs> that, that,
2: I thought, was sage advice because no trouble found says there's no trouble. Trouble right. not found means, yeah, we agree there's trouble. We can't find the source, so you keep looking. Right. Um, I think there's an even better acronym uh, for no trouble found, and in that well, instead of NTF, it should be WTF, and we'll let that lie right where it is because it's a frustrating problem. The engineer on the other side thinks the manufacturer is incompetent, and the manufacturer thinks the customer is incompetent because they can't duplicate the problem. So, um, why now? Why did we have such a good run with no clean and not cleaning and what are the factors, Sal, that are driving um, reliability issues, that are driving electrochemical migration through dendritic growth and parasitic electrical leakage and and other things what what's changed why is our magic wand not working anymore
0: (laughs) well I'm gonna start out with uh, something that's pretty interesting it's called Moore's law I don't know if you find this in a textbook yet but but basically it's attributed to Gordon Moore the co-founder and former CEO of, of Intel and basically what it says is we can expect the speed and capability of our computers to increase every two years and because of this we're going to pay less for it but to do that what's happening at the technology level right uh you know for most of this podcast we've been talking about surface mount technology right which is where this industry really took root what back in the in the 80s 90s and whatever right but you you know componentry is changing um semiconductors um you you know you know you single ics and so forth so things are getting more complex and when they get more complex um, you're putting, you know, board densities increase. I alluded to this before. Um, and, and, and even there's another phrase these days, it's called hybrid microelectronics, where literally you're, it's the merging of surface mount and semicon technology to be able to do what Gordon Moore was talking about, was to be able to give you the computing power um, in, you know, that you get on an iPhone or that we have on this, you know, this podcast today. Um, you know, like when I was in high school many years ago, you know we didn't even have calculators right i mean we were actually this is a, a fun fun fact i'll put this out here i was the first class in my high school that did not learn a slide rule because the year that i was there like it was at the ti whatever it was back in those days you know the algebraic calculator it was the, you know it was coming out and and schools allowed you to use that well look at the electronics today and mike i sent you another picture right i mean this one it kind of make the 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 point about how tight the 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 gaps are on componentry today and for the
2: sake of our audience for the sorry self for the sake of our audience we're showing several photographs of common of common everyday things and the relative size of those things
0: right so 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 i said I, i mentioned earlier that on the smt side we're in the realm of you know maybe 50 microns right is the gap you know and even in some cases less than that a human hair is 75 microns, so just think about that for a second. How thin is that, right? And it gets back to the surface tension argument we talked about a little bit ago. And then when you get to some of these microelectronics things, uh, like copper pillars and things like this, the spacing between these things you're talking about 40, uh, you know, 40 microns. I mean, it's literally you know tiny, tiny. So you, you know, bacteria is five microns, just to give you, you you know another snapshot. So, in answer to your question, Mike. Uh, you, you know, the, and I'd, I'd like to use your phrase, the risk tolerance, right? So, you know, think of where computers are used today. Think of, you know, not just phones. I think of the EV industry, the electrification of automotive, um, you know, of cars, right? There's more computers in a car than, uh, you know, today than ever before. And these things are built with highly sophisticated components in the semiconductor industry, you know, creating these hybrid microelectronics. The spacing is so tight, and it gets back to the whole cleaning uh, marketing we've been talking about here. Uh, you know everything that Eric talked about, that all the different types of residues. Let's call it those polar and nonpolar, um, you know, residues that are on these, you know, on these boards. Uh, the gaps are so tight, so close that unless you have an engineered cleaning agent of some sort. And a machine, as we talked about before, that's where you're able to literally you know, optimize those energy sources to contact the residue, solubilize that residue, and then rinse it off, rinse it off that part.
2: I'm gonna go back so, to that. I'm gonna yeah. go back to that photograph yeah.
0: just for a moment
2: because I wanna I wanna make a point here. Uh, the typical diameter, if you will, of coffee of a coffee ground, right? Yeah, it's true. Uh, is three hundred and fifty five microns. Uh, the typical size of a grain of beach sand is two hundred and fifty microns. As you mentioned, Sal, human hair is seventy five microns. the I didn't even think that this would be measurable, but smoke consists of <laughs> tiny particles that are about 10 microns in size. I, 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 you, obviously you can't see that. Um, in fact, I think I think fifty microns is the limit for visual. You can't see anything. Sm- the human eye cannot see anything smaller than 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 fifty microns. Um, well, it sounds about right because a hair is seventy five. Seventy five. Right? You, you clearly can see that. Yeah. Um, right. I know my wife can because if I have a hair on my shoulder or something, she can see it from ten <laughs> feet away and come over and pull it off. Um, the, the, by bacteria, as you mentioned, is five microns. The standoff height. The standoff height below a QFN. Is about two microns, sometimes one. Two microns, yeah. That's smaller. That would be the the most sterile environment to be in because if you can get under there, bacteria can't fit, right? (laughs) Even bacteria (laughs) can't fit under there. Sure. Yet, you have to get, we, the equipment people, have to get your juice under there to clean, right? Which, which is quite a feat, and hence your. Your comments earlier about the surface tension reduction properties of a chemical additive, because how can you clean under a two mil standoff with seven with um, uh, you know yeah, seventy yeah, dime water? Yeah, right, I call right, it, Exactly. You know, I, I, I call it chasing skinny water with fat water. You know, it's it's very challenging to do. And every manufacturer of equipment has their own technique. Every chemical company has their own version of surface tension. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions about pH in just a little bit because you guys have done some novel things with pH that kind of go against conventional wisdom, um, at least historical Here. conventional Here. wisdom. Here. Uh, but before we do that, one of my favorite subjects is things that go wrong. And one of my favorite people to talk to about things that go wrong is Eric because Eric <laughs> Spence he has a whole career – Finding things that go wrong. And uh, Eric, tell us some tales from the crypt. Uh, When you go out and do an investigation, you're like a CSI. You're like a crime scene investigator, right? Right. And you're looking for the bodies and the murderer and the murder weapon and all that stuff. So tell me a a story or two that you think would be
1: uh, anecdotal for for this topic. Sure. You know, one of the things I'm seeing actually more and more these days, you know, and and we can certainly expand on this, you know, is cleaning of no cleans, Um, you know, understanding how to do that. So when we go see a customer, they've sent us a failure, and we've done the iron chromatography, we've done some, you know, localized extractions, we've done some SIM, whatever it might be. Um, And and what we find out is, you know, they have an ineffective wash process for the materials materials they're trying to clean. So as Sal mentioned earlier, you know you've got to have that mechanical energy you've got to have the contact time for the chemistry you know to to, to be on the board you can't wash at four foot a minute you, you cannot wash like under a qfn no matter how much concentration you're using of what chemistry you're using you can't wash at four foot a minute you know you have to give that chemistry time along with the thermal energy you know and the mechanical energy to, to really do its job so you know what we see you know with with many customers is cleaning of no clean where they uh you know where they're just not doing a good job. You know they were cleaning water soluble just fine with that 15 years ago. So we're plugging the machine back in, and now we're gonna you know try this new flux. You know flux is flux. So you know w- w- what I'm finding, you know the, this this tails from the crib thing. You know what I'm finding is you know a lot of higher ups and may, along the manufacturing line have de- have determined that they hear the word no clean and they're not worried about leaving anything behind. You know if they don't do an effective cleaning job. They just think, well, it's no clean flux. It doesn't matter if we leave residues behind. Instead of actually knowing how no clean flux works, you've got this outer shell, you know, a poor man's conformal coat. You know, basically, you know, at this point in time in the industry, you know, and when you remove that outer shell from that no clean flux, um, now all of a sudden you've exposed everything that's going to readily absorb moisture and set up those, you know, uh, ECM, you know, pathways and start that electrical leakage path. So, you know, I see so many times out there, where customers are, you know, they're, okay, now our customers are saying we have to, we have to wash something, you know, we're just going to use the same profiles and everything we did exactly the same way as 15 years ago, when everything was through hole, you know, we, well, not 15 years ago, you know, still even 15 years ago, you know, we're nowhere near the surface mount technology that we have now. So so we've lost a lot of that clearance um, that we had, you know, that, that we don't, we, we weren't worried about, you know, two micron standoffs. Um, 15 years ago, it didn't exist really, you know, outside of some very specialized parts. This is some of the early, you know, package on package stuff maybe, but, you know, now I, I just think people, you know, the, the, they, they, tend to lean on what worked a long time ago, thinking it'll work today when, you know, working in the failure analysis and process qualification side of things, you know, we know that's absolutely, you know, just not the case. So, you know, when we get out there and, and we see, you know, people, being a little laissez-faire, laissez-faire about, you know, what, what materials they're using and they figure, oh, well, it's, it's all no clean, so I'm not worried about putting, you know, extra, you know, I got a large thermal mass component, so we'll just, you know, double, triple the amount of flux I'm going to put on the board, you know, and then use that same profile, not thinking, well, you know, and going back to what you said earlier, Mike, you know, a lot of times, you know, even especially with us, you know, from our side, you know, we hear it from flux manufacturers you know, well, you're saying, that you know, work is dirty and this, that, and the other, and I, I've never said that a flux is a right or wrong material. What my job is, is to go to the customer and say, can they process that material in a way that leaves it, you know, in a near benign state as you, as, as you have manufactured it. So it, it's not a material qualification, disqualification, you know, from our side of things most of the time, it's a process qualification, not a material qualification. So, can we optimize your, you know, reflow? Can we look at your wash, whatever it might be, you know, to handle the materials that you have chosen? So, you know, it, it's it's really getting out there and, and making a mindset where people aren't swapping chemistries all the time, you know, cleaning or flux or whatever it is, and say, let's let's work with what you have with the equipment that you have to figure out how to get these failures out of here because you know we see a lot of times zero failures and then those are you know usually the easiest ones to diagnose because it'll be something fairly obvious you know we'll have it narrowed down to a trace to you know a, a single line or a part whatever it might be you know you can usually work backwards from that looking at the assembly process looking at the equipment and all that you know but it, there's just so many we've always done it this way still out here in the industry and you know i mean Working from the failure analysis side, you know, that's great for the bottom line, but, you know, we need to get this education out there, let everybody know, you know, everything has changed in the last 10 years. If, if you don't keep up, you're just going to keep, you know, piling up your scrap pile and, and, and your customer returns and, and satisfaction is going to go down.
2: Yeah, there's an awful lot of cause and effect in our world. Uh, for sure, yeah. every world, yeah. actually. Sure. But, yeah. Yeah, sure. Certainly yeah. in our world, a lot of cause and effect. Uh, one of the things that I think, <clears throat> I, I talked about changing the mentality from, Calling it a, a defluxing process to a cleaning process. The other, if I, if this was the world according to Mike, the other thing I would, I would um, pronounce, is um, don't call it no clean flux, because no clean flux presumes you're not going to clean it, and if you are cleaning a no clean flux, it just sounds like you're doing something wrong, right? And right. I like to refer to it as a low solids flux because that's what what it is. is. It's a low solids flux. Now, I talked to one flux manufacturer uh, several years ago, and he he said, of all people, flux manufacturer, no clean flux does not mean don't clean. It means if you are not going to clean, this is the species of flux you need to run. The only species of flux you can run, if you're not going to clean, obviously, if you're not going to clean, you wouldn't run an organic acid flux, an O.A. flux, because that would be like leaving battery acid on your board. Um, you wouldn't leave a, even an R.M.A. on the board with the with the um, component spacings and standoff heights we have today. That would be disastrous. That would be instant E.C.M. Um, but no clean doesn't mean don't clean. No clean is just the species appropriate for not cleaning. I I found, I don't know about you Sal and Eric, most of our customers, a pretty good majority of our customers are cleaning no clean. And Talk we, about, we, hands we, down. yeah. And we like to conduct polls when we do our webinars. Now keep in mind people on a cleaning webinar are probably cleaning or interested in cleaning. So <laughs> that, that taints <laughs> things a little right. bit but well, we ask we ask our, our attendees um, once a year, uh, what's the most common flux you use? And by far, it's like eighty some odd percent. It's no clean. And then we ask, um, if it's no clean, what's the percentage of your no clean flux that you clean? And uh, the last poll was fifty six percent. Fifty six percent, more than half of the boards they reflow using no clean flux are cleaned. Now. On the, on the face of it, it sounds like, well, they must be doing something wrong. But there's a, there is a, a great advantage to sticking with one flux for your production needs. You know, is Rather it? than saying, okay, we're going to run a water-soluble flux or a, a different type of flux on stuff that's going to be cleaned, and we're going to run a no-clean on stuff that's not going to be cleaned. There is this um, uh, phenomenon <laughs> called engineering changes. And I can't think of the last major engineering change a flux manufacturer has uh, developed for water-soluble flux. It wouldn't surprise me if someone told me that water-soluble flux formulations haven't changed in 20 years. That wouldn't surpri- I don't know if that's a fact, but that wouldn't surprise me if it was. Um, it also wouldn't surprise me if I learned that the last change to a... Uh, no clean flux formulation from the manufacturer was no more than 20 minutes ago.
1: It it, it is
2: constantly evolving. I think there's more data on no clean flux in terms of reflow profiles and uh, printing uh, techniques and specs, uh, release and slump and all the things that people look at when they're evaluating a solder paste. I think there's more available data Uh, research on no cleans than any other species of flux and that's because no clean represents probably 80 85 percent of the market Uh, so it makes sense to run the most engineered the most up-to-date the most supported the most understood soldering material and then clean what needs to be cleaned if it doesn't need to be clean wonderful don't clean go have a good day someday it's like the angel of death, you know, in the Bible, you know, the angel of death. <laughs> you know, you can paint, cleaning is, ver- is, is akin to putting lamb's blood over your door, right? The angel of death will pass you by. In this case, the angel of death is electrochemical migration. But eventually, as boards are engineered um, with components much, much closer together, and boards are more frequently placed into harsh environments, IOT, thank you very much. Electrification of cars, thank you very much. We're just pushing all this stuff out there. Everything's a connected device now, and a lot of those things are a harsh environment. And and that is just driving down the tolerance for residue. And okay. that is driving up the need to remove those residues to uh, to ensure that your assembly is reliable from an electrochemical migration standpoint. Now, so, my, you know, I... I uh, I've been, I've been on this planet a long time, I've been in this industry uh, 37 years, and I remember the early days of saponifiers, when uh, you know, there were always solvents, and there were always these saponifiers, and uh, they, they were, in the early days, I'm talking about 80s, they were did it, did it? relatively awful products, meaning that if you cleaned for eight seconds too long, your joints would all come out black, they had a super high pH, they had no buffering technology, they had, and they would damage a part quite rapidly. You would never put an aluminum heatsink into a cleaner with those types of right. saponifiers, because they would just come out pitted. Um, but the reason they had to have a high pH is because the whole process of saponification works by reacting with a high pH chemical Causing a chemical reaction to the low pH uh, acidic flux, and converting it to soap, which is saponification. And then during the rinse process, the soap can be rinsed away.
0: Rinse, rinsed, rinsed uh, off. It here. wasn't
2: truly solubilized in the in the manner that I'm familiar. I'm not a chemist, but the, the way I use the term solubilization, that's not really a sol, you know a, a solubilized material. Um, That was the old saponifiers. So I kind of grew up, cut my teeth with the idea that you need a high pH. Uh, Every chemical on the market, water-based defluxing chemical, cleaning chemical, was high pH. And all of a sudden, you guys (laughs) come up with a 7 pH, a neutral. And that just went against my understanding. So how does a... Two questions. How does a neutral chemical remove flux? What's different about it? And two, what are the advantages of running something that is pH neutral versus something that is traditionally 10 or 11 or whatever whatever the higher pH numbers are?
0: Sure, sure. So let me try and address it this way. So, so you're absolutely right. In the early days, um, yeah, whenever, go back 80s, 90s, whatever, um, high alkaline cleaning agents were basically the norm, right? But as you said, when you get into things like anodized aluminum and other types of sensitive metals and whatnot, you can get etching, discoloration, tarnishing, you know, and so on. So those high pH cleaners, um, the chemists would add what we would call inhibition packages, essentially, right? So they would add some other, um, you know, soup to the mix to prevent any kind of dulling and and and, and surface um you know, con- not contamination, but, you, you know, but surface degradation, if you will, right? And it works well. I, I mean, and we actually have those cleaning agents and they're widely sold today a- as well. However, over the years, and again, my my background is not, you know, I'm not a chemist here, but we, we have our PhD um, scientists over between America and over in Germany. These guys put their heads together and said, you know, there's got to be a way to get a pH-neutral cleaning agent to be able to solubilize penetrate you know get to these um um you know get get to that soil and and be able to you know like i said solubilize and remove it remove it from from the from the uh substrates itself so they've come up with it i mean i can't get into the, the specifics on that but sure for sure the ph values are in the range of seven to eight uh, it works very very well these are also inhibited products as well and it kind of goes to some of the comments you made in the beginning of this podcast when you were talking about, um, you, you know, the environmental, you know, the whole Marshall Protocol, right? It was all based on ozone depletion and the atmosphere and all those kinds of things, right? Well, those arguments haven't really gone away. And you kind of mentioned that, you know, this morning or earlier in this in this call. It's just that it's it, it it's basically shifting now, right? So we've kind of solved that problem. Um, and And the next steps were to try and come up with a more user-friendly cleaning agent which is what the ph neutrals are in other words they're not hazmat shipments right so they're much easier to ship they're they're more user-friendly They're less hazardous to use and those types of things right um and then also where we're going today is low vocs i mean you sit in los angeles county i think right down in southern california and SCAQMD has some of the tough, or has the toughest voc requirement or restriction in the country if not in the world so, you know, the push today from, say, our perspective as a chemistry supplier or an engineer cleaning agent supplier to electronics marketplace is to help companies get to that next level. Go to any OEM tier one uh, website and they all have sustainability initiatives and objectives. And I'm not just talking about, you know, like 14,000, well, ISO 14,000, of course, is part of it. But they're all about sustainability. So, you know, pH neutral is part of that because you can avoid, um, you know, neutralization of, of the wastewater depending on what your process is ultimately looking like. Um, like I said, you have the more user friendliness of the, you know, the people, um, shipping, uh, cost are reduce, those types of things. Um, and now if you pack onto that, being able to develop or, or put into the marketplace a true low VOC defluxing agent, it'll just meet that next level of Requirement that's coming, you know, from our industry. You know, take the EV industry. You know, you know, let's automobiles. Case in point. I mean, you know, they're all about environmental friendliness, right? And so, if their manufacturers are using high VOC, the flexing agents, I mean, you got to scratch your head and say mm, that doesn't kind of go along with our overall company you know, vision and mission here.
2: Sure. We're very so, rapidly running out of time, but I want to just touch this topic before I say goodbye. Uh, one of the most common questions I get asked is how clean is clean or how clean is clean enough? And I think there are two answers. There are two answers. One is if Eric is sending you an invoice, it's not clean enough. (laughs) So if Eric walks through your front door, uh, your boards were not clean enough. The industry, IPC, one of our major trade organizations, and, and the organization that sets standards used to have a an exact number on how clean was clean enough. And that was uh, with the use of a resistivity of solvent extract tester or rose tester. Um, and, and basically, in, in imperial terms, that was 10 micrograms of sodium per square inch. Anything 10 or less, thumbs up, ship the product. It's clean. Anything greater than 10 Thumbs down, don't ship it, it's dirty. Uh, and, and for those of you in the metric world, the rest of the world, uh, that's 1.56 uh, micrograms per centimeter squared. So I'll use 10. Uh, so 10 and above, uh, 10, above 10, dirty, 10 or below, nice and clean. The irony is that that number never took, in, first of all, it was it was uh, developed in the 70s, and... You know, I would imagine that the people who who worked on that number drove to work in their Chevy Novas, listening to David Bowie on their eight-track tape player. You know, that's the that's the era that that standard was, or the numbers that eventually comprise the standard was uh, developed. And the number never considered the cost of failure. So, I mean, theoretically, a record player manufacturer who wanted to meet IPC standards would have to get the boards just as clean as NASA or Boeing or something, which is a little scary. Uh, it never considered the standoff heights. It never considered the density, because there wasn't a lot of diversity and density back in the 70s. All, all components were big and far apart. But it didn't consider any of those. It didn't consider the cost of failure. Uh, and it didn't consider the climactic and use environment. Everyone had the same number. Well, IPC um, took a long time. But they, they got the message and they, they said, okay, we got to change this. This is not working because 10 for some people is like stellar clean and 10 for some people is a death sentence, right? So it's, 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 it was no good. Uh, and now the new standard, which is freaking everybody out. Eric, I think you hear this quite regularly. And Sal, you probably like, do too. Yeah. It's freaking. In fact, I know because I, I, I spoke with your, your people, Sal, uh, about had, this very it. subject. Yep. And that is, what do engineers want? Give me a number. Tell me what I need to be. Tell me what number I need to hit, and I will, I will find a way to hit that number. That number went away. The new cleanliness standard is now, this is IPC, and I'll paraphrase what IPC said. So IPC, how clean is clean, uh, clean enough? This is IPC. I don't know. You tell me. Just just base the answer on objective evidence. And engineers are just like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> I want a number, and no, oh, we're not going to get a number. You're going to give me the number, and you're going to prove how you validated that number. So uh, we are running out of time, so I'll just say the the standard requires that a test coupon that closely resembles the components that are on your board and the soldering materials that you will use to reflow your board and the same profiles that are going to be used to reflow your board are as close as possible. You get this this facsimile dirty. of your of your product and you reflow it and with all the materials you know as you would in production and then you put it in an oven with heat and humidity and connect it to an SIR tester surface insulation resistance tester and you keep it in there for a week 168 hours minimum and if it doesn't fail from a resistivity standpoint if it if it if it if the resistivity does not drop below 1 times 10 to the 8, your boards are okay. The the, the crystal ball has determined that your boards will more than likely not fail given a similar harsh environment, and you can ship the boards. If it fails, then uh, you need to to clean better. You need need to do something, right? Change your design, usually clean better. Uh, So that is the pass-fail now, which means that... Maybe my board can get a 10. Maybe Eric's board um, can get a 0.5. Maybe Sal's board can get a 110 from a rose test standpoint. All of those are valid numbers as long as you can substantiate that number with objective evidence. So that's kind of, to me, every standard should be written that way. Rather than coming up with an arbitrary number that usually is a result of Several countries heard from several uh, input from commercial companies, from manufacturers, from users that all want the yeah, soften things up or or strengthen things up depending upon the advantage it provides them. Um, this is really quite objective. It's not subjective at all. It's very objective against the term objective evidence. But uh,
1: very much so, Mike. And if I could just real quick, you know, sure. if anybody can see, though. Trying to meet that new J standard one Well, it was actually released in Rev G, but Rev H builds on that in Section Eight. You know, go look at that IPC WPO19. You know, it's in the B revision right now, and it is a very clear um, companion document. Basically, it's just, you know, it's white paper document WPO19. You know, and it says here's what changed in the J standard, here's why it changed, why it's changing for the better, and here's really how you create your own objective evidence. You know, and Exactly. It gives you lots of examples. Um, I wrote a little bit. I wrote a few of those myself, you know, and based on what we've done with our customers for years, because we would have customers come say, look, we passed the IPC, you know, cleanliness requirement. Our board should not be failing. And I'm like, well, you can take that up with the IPC, I guess, because what you sent me was a, you know, a charred, hulk, you know, skin of what used to be your product. So, I mean, sure, it passed, you know, that criteria, but that clearly wasn't the right number for you. So, you know, it really comes down to, you know, doing your own homework, just like you mentioned, making sure that your number, whatever, however you're going to monitor, if it rows or ion chromatography or any other method out there, you know, you try to mash that up a little bit with your passing SIR. And now you've got a process monitoring data point that says my number is 0.5. It is 110 for Sal. You know, we, we've passed this 40 degrees C, 90% relative humidity, 168 hour test. You know, just to prove it to yourself, but that WP019, you know, I like to guide a lot of people there, you know, who are kind of newer to meeting criteria and they say, what happened to the 1.56 and we say, well, it was never supposed to be used the way, you know, it was, you know, finally overtaken, you know, but by so many users they say, well, we're going to use that as acceptance criteria. And that's a, never what it was supposed it to was be. It was a
2: 50 year uh, accident basically yeah Yeah.
1: (laughs) everybody was happy with it until they weren't you know and but as miniaturization, you know and and complexities and things change you know but why wouldn't the criteria change you know i mean that that's just it never made sense to me even you know from an outsider coming in you know 23 years ago now you know it it never made sense to me that how does that same you know number apply to everything you know it's because you could meet it you know i mean the it was it's not it's not a hard standard to meet you know, 1.56, it makes it attainable, not the right number necessarily. But it it might be. There's still a lot of people that are using that. You know, objective evidence can include historical, you know, precedent showing we don't have a lot of failure related to board. We tested to this standard for the last 20 years. So we're not changing anything. And the IPC said, great, go for it. That's your objective evidence.
2: One fly in the ointment there. Level one and level two changes. If you made any changes that fall under a level one or level two category, you got to go back to SIR. So yeah, I, so you could in theory if if you, all you've done is rose testing and you've never had an ECM issue for twenty years, and you've never made a level one or level two change, and just right. to just to bring this out to make a point, a level one level two change is changing the line the production line your machine is on. If you move it from line one to line two, that's a change that you have to yep. go back and do some objective evidence. So yes, that is true. I would love it if it weren't so strict. Um, from as, uh, as an equipment manufacturer standpoint, right? But it is that way for a reason, as long as you don't change things. But the, a change, you know, I can't think of 20 days that go by without someone stumbling over a level one Some or a level two change, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and to your point on the white paper, if I only had $100 to my name and I had to buy the standard or the white paper, I would buy the white paper in a heart sure. Because to me yep. the white paper references the standard and then provides layman explanations by example. And they use for example, company A does this, company B does that, company C does this. And yep. you will identify with one of the four or five or six companies that they, they mentioned. It's and they're all acceptable per the standard. Absolutely. It is yeah. yeah, I find the the fuss is much to do much to do about nothing. It it really it, is a blessing in the form of a standard, more than anything else, because at the end of the day, you're not out to check a box. You're out to ship products that's not going to come back to you, right? You don't want, right? Whether you're you're mission critical and it can't fail, or you're a consumer product and it shouldn't fail. Uh, either way, it's going to cost you time and money, and reputation, and you know potential liabilities and you know, things like that. So. You know, you gonna do it,
0: <laughs> it, gonna do it now, right. or you're gonna it, get
2: Eric right in the and Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Keep Eric out of your office. Keep. I, <laughs> no. I can say that with confidence because he's never gonna run out of work. Never. Yeah. Never yeah. At all.
1: We're, we are no longer. You know, Terry Munson said he thought he'd be in business for five years, and that was 32 years ago. Yeah. You know, he, he thought, well, the the industry will catch on to this cleanliness thing, and we'll we'll move on to something else. Here we are.
2: Yeah. Well. What we learn from history is we don't learn from history. We just it's just <laughs> washrins repeat. Um yep. to coin a cleaning term. Well, guys, sure. um, this has been fun. I can talk cleaning all day long. So and, and we didn't even hit some maybe of the we subjects. need a part two. Like, I think we will come back. We won't wait. We won't wait uh, two years or three years, however long it's been since I've talked about cleaning on this show. We won't wait that long um, next time because it is a relevant topic. You know, obviously, Maslow's theory. When you're a cleaning person all you see is you know cleaning challenges and opportunities but um but it is definitely um a growing subject it's it's definitely yeah. mainstream again or very near mainstream again it's it's not absolutely it's not mm-hmm. a random process uh, that's seldomly executed it's it's common every day um i will uh, for my audience i will provide sal's uh, and eric's contact information uh, if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, just go to your app and look at the show notes and you'll see contact information there. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, just uh, look down where it says show more, click that, and uh, you'll have uh, access to Eric and Sal's contact information. Uh, Sal Sparacino, uh sales director at uh, Zestron uh, Americas, and Eric Camden, lead investigator Foresight Laboratories. Uh, Thank you both for being my guests. Thank you both for agreeing to come on and and talk about what you do, Uh, cleaning and uh, failure analysis and things like that. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.
0: Yeah, thank you as well. All right, guys. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
2: Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. Also, a special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks also for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send comments or episode suggestions to mike at mikeconrad.com. Just remember, that's Conrad with a K. And be sure and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching our podcast on YouTube, click the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Once again, thanks for listening or watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks.
1: Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.